Pethuel means, and this is difficult because it's simply God opening, God opening. What does that mean? Well, some believe that it means the open-heartedness of God. In other words, God is open to us. I'm not sure that's right, but I do know this. We know nothing about Pethuel, and this is the only time in the Bible that his name occurs. Now, because of that, there is no genealogy. There is no reference in the book about Joel's family. We don't know uh, whether he was married, whether he had children. We do about some of the prophets know those facts. But we don't know what he did. We don't know how old he was, where he was actually from. And so he must remain somewhat of a mystery to us. Let's talk about the time of his work, and this adds a little bit to the complication. When we studied Amos, we had a clear indication of the time that Amos prophesied. You remember back, uh, if you will, look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Amos, when he says, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of, Ahab, of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That's a lot of information. None of that is given in Joel. And because none of it is given, there are two different contrasting ideas about when Joel prophesied. And I think this is one of the more significant variances of interpretation. Some people, commentators, believe that Joel was written at a very early date, generally uh, thought to be about 830 B.C. If that were true, it would make Joel among the, among the earliest of all the writing prophets. Why would they choose that early date? Well, for one reason, there is no threat or no reference to a threat from Assyria or Babylon. Assyria had not yet come on the scene in this view. They, they wouldn't start being a real power until about 760, and Babylon would be over with by, by a later, uh, much later, of course. Some, some would even argue that uh, the placement of the book, second in the Minor Prophets, would indicate that it was old. That's really not good enough uh, thinking, I don't believe. Other people look at a late date, and they even want to say that it was written after the Babylonian exile. Why would they think that? because there is no reference to a king. Remember Amos, there is a reference to a king, two kings in fact, there's no reference to a king. We know that after uh, Israel went into Assyrian captivity, 721, and then uh, dispersed all over the country and countries, some came back to Judah, I mean to Israel, Judah is destroyed finally in 586. And then when they come back after 70 years of captivity, they have no king. 
And so some would say, that's why it's a late date. Well, I think the early date seems preferable for most conservative scholars. We don't really have the time to go into that. We're going to see in the book, there are going to be the mention, there is going to be the mention of some enemies. They're not the typical enemies that you would find later. These would be early enemies. Now, we're not going to go into all of that, but let me just say this. The date of the book has absolutely no effect on the message of the book. Message is the same whether it was delivered early or late. Let's talk about Joel's writing style, the way he presented this material. Unlike Amos, as we finished that study, Joel does not have a bunch of visions that he sees. He, he is a teaching, in fact, some say he was a masterful preacher. I don't know if I'd use that term, but he was a teacher and, and, and presented a message. And what he did was to use a plague of locust to teach a spiritual lesson, a, a literal happening to teach a spiritual lesson. And there are a number of verses in these three chapters that are really parallel statements to other statements found in other prophetic books. Now, we may have the time to look at some of those uh, parallel statements later, but not now. At the same time, I think we have to note that the parallel statements are also related in a way to the question of when Joel wrote the book. And here's why. If Joel wrote this early, then later prophets who have parallel statements were writing what Joel had written. I don't mean copying, I'm just saying they're saying the same thing that Joel said if they wrote later than Joel. You want know, to turn it around the other way. If this is a later book, then Joel is writing the same thing that earlier prophets wrote. But we can't be sure of either of those. Here's a brief outline of the book, and I do mean brief. I think you could limit it to just two points. A plague of locusts and the call for repentance, chapter 1, verse 1 through 217. And then the future, 218 through 321. Here's another way you could divide the book. <laughs> this is even simpler. Section 1, Joel speaks. Section 2, God speaks. Can't get easier than that, can it? Let's take some time looking at the text. That's really all we need to say by way of introduction. We may go back later and touch on some of these verses when we go to applications. And, and we're just going to work our way through this. I'm going to be doing some reading. I hope you don't mind that. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, very little time is spent by Joel in introducing the book. And like Amos, Joel attributes what's going to follow to God. This is not Joel's message. This is God's message through Joel. This is what God wants Joel to say. 
And here is what he begins to say, verses two through four. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Immediately, Joel calls for attention. And first, the attention is drawn to the elders, the older men who are leaders in Israel and Judah. And and, uh, then all of the inhabitants of the land. This is not just a message for the old men who lead. This is for everyone. And before even describing the calamity that they have undergone, a locust invasion, Joel emphasizes the severity of what has happened. Now, please note, it has already happened. This is not something that is forecast for the future. This is something that is a, is a reality. We don't know how much earlier, how close it was to when Joel is saying this, but it's already done. And he will ask the older men, you remember anything like this? And the implied answer is, you don't. There, there hasn't been anything like this as extreme. And in fact, it is so bad that it needs to be told to generation after generation so it will not be forgotten. You need to perpetuate this story about how devastated the land was through the locust invasion. Let me pause here to say how history ought to teach us and how often it is forgotten. We, and I include myself, we do not always remember the lessons of history. And I'm not going to quote the old statement about being doomed to repeat it. (laughs) But it's possible. If we don't learn, we may suffer. Look again at verse 4, if you will. I'm not going to read it again because it's difficult to read, but but four terms are used to describe the invaders. Swarming locust, crawling locust, consuming locust, first a chewing locust, swarming, crawling, and consuming. There's some disagreement among commentaries about what this really refers to. Is this, and this is a general idea, it, it refers to the stages of development of the locust, that, that they go through the four stages, actually five, of development, and each of the stages of development brings some difficulty. I think it's uh, just as possible to believe that it is four different kinds of locust. Uh, I have done some reading, I'm not a locust expert, but I've done some reading, and locusts are not all the same. They are different worldwide. And we can't really be certain one way or the other about it. 
the most important part is not whether they're developing or four different kinds. The important thing is that it happened. And it is doubtful that you and I can fully appreciate the devastation that was seen. Notice what the chewing locust left was also eaten. What the swarming locust left was also eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust eat. You say, well, how can that be? If, if what's left is eaten, it, it appears to be moving on through different things. Maybe the original planning, this is going to get even down to eating the bark of the trees because evidently that was what often happened. Now, I, I could give you a lot of information about locust plagues. You don't want it, and I won't give it. But, but let me just give you one little example, and this is not ancient. There is a very well-documented locust invasion that was about 1915, but let's move a lot closer to our time. This would be the last half of 1986, and this was in Africa. It was in Ethiopia. Two million people in Ethiopia died, uh, or a half of the people uh, of the two million died in Ethiopia as well as in other African continents. Here it is. Armies of Senegal locust in West Africa, the desert variety among the Red Sea, migratory and red locust in East Africa, and the brown locust in Southern Africa began to arrive at the same time. Usually no more than two varieties are active simultaneously. And then here's the part I want you to really note. The damage locusts can do is legendary. A swarm covering a third of a square mile can number around 60 million and destroy 100 tons of crops per day. During an infestation, one square mile can contain seven tons of locust. The reproduction rate is phenomenal. A single female can produce up to 400 young in three months. And so you can imagine if, and I think we add one other factor, if God causes it, it can be much worse than any natural calamity would cause. Okay, when you get through from verses 5 through 14, we see the results of the locust, but also what those results call for. Look at verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine for it has been cut off from your mouth. It, it, it appears that what Joel is doing, first of all, is moving from excess to essentials. Wine is cut off from the drunkard. And incidentally, a question I can't answer, nor can you, is we might wonder how much of a problem drunkenness was in Joel's day. 
I think we have several indications in the prophets that drunkenness in ancient times was a considerable problem because there are a lot of rebukes about drunkards. Even in the writings of Solomon, there are a number of rebukes about drunkards. Now, that is cut off. The drunkard doesn't have anything to get drunk with. But it appears that also the new wine, that is the non-intoxicating kind, is also gone. Surely it would be. If, if the grapes have been destroyed, there's not going to be fermented wine. There's not going to be new wine. And the drunkards would want one thing, that is intoxicating drink, and the others would be satisfied with fresh grapefruit juice, grape juice. They would drink the real natural thing, but both of them are gone. In verse 6, uh, Joel uses a metaphor. The, the uh, locusts have teeth that remind one of a lion's teeth. Why? Notice verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land. This, this is not people. This, this is the locust. Strong and without number, his teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. Uh, strong enough to destroy, not just fruit and leaves, but also the bark of the trees. That has been documented as well. This is complete devastation. Verse 7, he, laid he has laid waste. Would you notice this? my vine and stripped my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. The branches are made white. Is this not a reminder that God is telling his people, this is mine, it's not yours. He, they've taken my vine and my fig tree. I under, I'm not a fig tree expert either, but I understand that the bark of a fig tree is soft and it can be destroyed, and it was destroyed. In verse 8, I think uh, you see a lament, a rather unusual lament. This is like a young woman who has lost her intended husband. Lament like a virgin, note that, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. You see, the anticipation of a young woman to be married would be not only that she would have a husband, but that she would have offspring. You're not going to have any offspring because she doesn't have any husband. He is gone. And then when you get down, and, and that would be an incidentally intense grief on her part, never to have been able to be married, never to have a child. When you get to verse 9 and 10, the grain offering uh, and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is laid is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. The first mention of the priest, and incidentally before Joel finishes this letter book, he will show the corruption of the priesthood. It is not a good priesthood at this moment. But their mourning 
because there are no sacrifices due to the devastation. The fields are bare of grain and the olive trees have been stripped so there can be no olive oil. There can be no grain offered. Verse 11, he adds farmers and vine dressers to the morning. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. For the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, has perished. And then in verse 12, the vine is dried up, fig tree is withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So here you are. It's all gone. The, the, the vines have been destroyed. The grapes have been ruined. The crops are gone. The trees are devastated. But there's not just the material things now. Joy is gone. You have lost so much. You feel so completely ruined that now there is only a hopelessness. In verses 13 and 14, we need to see more than grief. He says, gird yourselves and lament, you priest. This is the first indication that the priests need to be offering a dirge themselves. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the drink offering and the uh, grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. This is, a, this is the point in the book of the beginning of a call for repentance, of change. The priests are to set an example by putting on sackcloth. Sackcloth was coarse material, worn as a symbol of misery and devastation. And they need, Joel says, to fall on the ground, lie on your face all night, and call for a solemn fast, an assembly, not an assembly to celebrate, an assembly to cry out and to confess. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Incidentally, again, the, the idea of an earlier date may be found here when Joel says, bring everybody into the house of the Lord. The temple had not been destroyed. And then verse 15 through 20, Joel reveals that the day of the Lord is at hand. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. The, the, the locust invasion points to more than the loss of food and the loss of drink and the loss of offerings. It points to judgment. And so here is now the beginning of the application. Here is the tragedy. Here's what the tragedy means. 
we come to that expression, the day of the Lord. And you are familiar with that expression because 18 times in the writings of the prophets it occurs. Five of the times in just these three chapters. Incidentally, there is another expression that appears many, many more times. I'm, I'm told like 208 times. And it is that expression, in that day. It doesn't say the day of the Lord, but in that day, pointing to a future time. We're not going to take the time right now to delve into the meaning of the expression completely, the day of the Lord. But let me just note that the day of the Lord could bring one of two possible results. When God promised the day of the Lord, or a prophet, or a writer promised the day of the Lord, the anticipation is that it will be a day of blessing. The day when the Lord blesses, the day when the Lord uh, corrects wrongs that have been made against us, when he takes care of our enemy, a day of relief. But oftentimes that was not the meaning. It could be, but oftentimes it wasn't. Oftentimes the meaning is it is a day of difficulty, a day of punishment, a day of shame, a day of, of God bringing about the punishment that is deserved, the wrath of God. We saw the negative side of that uh, back in Amos. If you look again just for a moment to Amos 5, I'm going to re this, recall this for you. <clears throat> in, in the day of Amos, he would say this in verse 18 of chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion or a bear and a bear met him or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? If you were hoping for the day of the Lord that it might be a good day and it turned out to be a bad day, you really wouldn't want it to come. There is a positive side, and we'll reserve that for a little bit later. Here in Joel 1.15, it's not good. Now, in order to, uh, let, let me read verse 15. Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And, and Joel again states what has already happened, beginning verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, storehouses are in shambles, barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of the cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. Food has disappeared, and there is no joy. How can there be? Planting produces nothing because it's not going to grow. 
And even the animals are restless and they suffer. They hunger, they can't find any satisfaction because they have nothing to eat. And these desolate conditions prompt Joel to cry out to God. Verse 19 and 20. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beast of the field also cry out to you. What a sad, sad statement. The locust plague had resulted in fires. I mean, in drought. Drought had led to fire, and the conditions were there. I want to re repeat what I said about Amos. I do not believe for a moment that Amos was happy that he had to deliver a message of judgment against Israel. I don't believe Joel is happy of what has happened to his people and to their land. He cries out to the Lord. You know, I want to add this little thought because we're out of time. Uh, terrible conditions cause Joel to cry out to God. Sadly, when everything seems to be going well, people don't cry out to God. You know, we're, we're hearing a lot of talk, you heard some tonight, about world news. Do, do you think if the United States were to be in war, that church attendance would improve? You think more people would be praying? Probably. Because we cry out to the Lord when we're in distress. Why don't we have the same devotion to God during the good times? Because we become self-sufficient. We begin to think we can do it on our own. Since we're out of time, let me pray quickly with you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this time. Thank you for ancient messages that still have modern applications. Father, we're sorry that your people in old times were not obedient to you and needed to be punished. Father, we plead with you to help us to be the right kind of people so that you do not have to punish us. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. We'll begin with Joel 2 next week. 2 and 3, I promise. <laughs>